Rolling. Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise. Your car's out of warranty, right? Well, what you need to do right away is get yourself to warrantywise.co.uk and they will give you an unbeatable quote. It's also brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and you'll find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And it's brought to you by Mini Sports. They specialise in the classic Mini and have been doing so since 1967, so they know what they're doing. Find them at minisport.com. Now, if there's one thing I like, it's a road trip with the right company and an interesting car. So when my pal Guy Loveridge, who is a writer, racer, and also an auctioneer, called me and said, do you fancy driving 3,000 miles through Europe in six days in a 70-year-old car? I said, yes. Guy, what was when did cars become available to the British public after the war? Was it straight away? Because all sorts of things were rationed, like... I think petrol was, was it eight or nine years petrol remained on the ration in the UK? Indeed, pool petrol stayed, which meant that there were no brands. It was pool, that was what you had on top of the pump, pool So it petrol. wasn't BP or SO or... Cleveland, Discol or whatever, it was everyone put whatever fuel into it. And there was a great black market immediately after the war from anyone who lived near an RAF station in Avgas because they had huge amounts left over and no sorties to fly anymore. But cars were available if you were the right person with the right needs straight after the war. The factories, uh, like the Austin, who were producing aircraft uh, as a satellite production... What did Austin, Austin, as we know, was, at the time before the war, the British, the biggest car maker in Britain, and exporting around the world, of course, mainly to the Empire, to South Africa, Australia, to India, and to the four corners of the world. Um, but what did Austin do? What did you do do during the war, Father? What did Austin do during the war? They made planes, aircraft, uh, munitions. Longbridge um, was a satellite production facility for Avro Lancasters. Yeah, and they Birmingham Coventry, the Coventry Blitz. It happened because Coventry was the centre of car manufacture yeah. and bike manufacture, and so the Germans tried to level it because they knew that those skills were being put to work making engines. Uh, Ford of Britain made more Merlin engines than Rolls-Royce ever did. There is a plaque on the shopping centre, the Trafford Centre, at a place with the uh, incongruous name of Dumplington. The the Trafford Centre, which is one of the biggest shopping centres in the UK, just off the motorway by the city airport in Manchester, it's actually a place called Dumplington, but there's there's a brass plaque. Most people just breeze straight by it. That says more Merlin engines were produced there by the Ford Motor Company, and you know, thank God for them, um, than by anybody else in, in any other location. Yeah, um, Trafford Park was bombed. I mean, here's the thing: people talk. Let's not get too far into this, but people talk about, oh, these are terrible times. Within living memory, and I've lived right where the Luftwaffe, Salford Docks, on Trafford Park, where the Luftwaffe used to come every night every night to try and stop Britain's war effort. And you think, those were tough. These aren't tough times. Those were tough times when pe- and people couldn't just go, oh, well, there's a big... O-. Well, like Bentley, <laughs> with a big hole in the roof <laughs> where the Luftwaffe popped a bomb through. People didn't go, 
oh, there's a big hole in the roof, we'll have to all go home. They just went, hmm, let's sweep up and carry, make a cup of tea, I'll sweep up and we'll carry on. So Austin must have known that they would have to pick up where they'd set off after the war. They did. Uh, they... Uh, but were they ready? Some car makers were ready. Same with bikes. If you look what? at, if you look at the, the two most contrasting uh, examples for me are in the American motorcycle world, Harley-Davidson and Indian. Harley were ready for the post-war market. Indian weren't. And by the early 50s, Indian had gone, leaving Harley sort of the last man standing. Were Austin ready for the post-war... Did we have a... I was going to say, for the post-war sales boom. America had a huge post-war sales boom, did we, the UK? No. Uh, there was great demand. Um, people came back from the war. Um, people like doctors, for example, still went round, still did house calls. And so they were guaranteed a car. Uh, there's a classic story. Um, Chris Lawrence, the, the Morgan engineer, his dad was a, a very enthusiastic rider and he bought X-Works machinery, and he had a, a Norton International. And when he went off to the war, he'd laid it up, and he very carefully took the plug off, and he filled it full of castrol and left it. And when he came back, the engine had dissolved. So uh, loads of people laid their cars up, but didn't do it very well. I, I interviewed a guy called Lee Lott, or Lucky Lee Lott, as he was known, and he was a salt-of-the-earth, East London geezer. And he had smashed up countless numbers of Lagondas, Bentleys, Rolls Royces at White City on a Friday or a Saturday night. He showed me the photographs. There's like a Bentley nudging a Art Deco Lagonda, sort of painted flat black with no glass in it. And he said they used to get the cars. I mean, huge crowds. They entertained huge crowds at these these mm. events. Mm. And he said they had an advert in the London Evening newspaper, I don't think it was called Evening Standard then, but London Evening newspaper that said, wanted big cars, we pay £10, exclamation mark. And then they get a phone call from some from a widow who'd say, well, there it is, I don't, he's not coming back, I don't know what to do with it, it's just been sat here for however long. And like I say, I say again, Bentleys, mm. Rolls Royces, Alvis, Lagonda, some of the greatest names, not just in British motoring, but in motoring, smashed up and he never on a Friday night for the entertainment of the masses and he never paid more than ten pounds for a car. So you couldn't get petrol. No, nope, you had to have a, a chit because as you as you know, Steve, it was rationed. You can tell his ex, you can tell his ex surfaces, can't you? You had to have a chit. That would have been permission to purchase petrol. Permission to purchase petrol. My for essential users. My grandfather had that because he was employed in obviously I'm a Lancastrian um, and you're a resident in Yorkshire and have been for a mm -hmm. long time. Lancashire and Yorkshire, between them, cotton and wool, the textile industry split between the two counties in the north of England. And my grandfather was involved in um, uniform, the production of uniforms. So right through the war, he had, like, the grade A chip because he had to travel to ensure that soldiers, sailors, airmen actually had the, the uniforms that they needed. So people don't realise... How long that continued for after the war? Petrol oh. rationing was the last one to go, wasn't it? Yep. Sugar rationing and petrol were the last two. Sugar was one of the last ones. Yeah, yeah because, again, it produced a weird health spike, didn't it? Many years later, the, the people who grew up during sugar rationing, which went on for like 15 years, if they went through their childhood with the sugar ration, they were thinner 
in better health, and they had much better teeth than Absolutely. the average Brit as well. Yep. No sweeties, no chocolate. My, my dad's 80, and he remembers his first banana after the war, and he didn't know you're supposed to peel them. <laughs> He didn't, did he? Absolutely oh, true. Oh, come on, guy, that's Absolutely not true. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. But he also remembers the American forces and getting gum and Hershey bars off American soldiers. Well, my grandfather's farm, my dad's father, my grandfather's farm, dairy farm, so, of course, they were, you know, they were a reserved occupation, as, yep. as it was said in the UK. He had an Austin 16. We're going to be talking about the Austin 16. My grandfather had one. Um, they were right next to an American airbase at Haywood in Lancashire. Well, not an airbase, a base. My dad did the whole, got any gum chum, you know, the whole thing with the servicemen. And that got my dad kind of obsessed with American culture and the whole, and the glamour of America, you know, mm. and he wanted all that sort of stuff. Austin, at the outbreak of war, were the biggest British car maker, weren't mm-hmm. they? They'd phased out the Austin 7 about nine months before the start of the war. The Austin Big 7 was in full swing, the Austin 8 was there. They were planning for the new model year. Uh, Leonard Lord had gone to America in 1938. He'd seen the shape of tomorrow. Things to come. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they were ready to go. They had their 1940 model year all planned out. And then, of course, essential production only. They carried on making Austin 8s. They made staff cars, Austin shear lines, but in a very, very, very restricted yeah. number, all for essential users. And during the war, Austin did what? Made munitions, made aircraft, made Bren gun carriers, made tanks, made anything that they could. Because, of course, this was, uh, some people might call it profiteering, but it was all had to be paid for. People still had to eat. Workers had to be you know, looked after. Lots and lots of women flooded into the factories, of course. Of course. To take up the slack where their men had volunteered or gone yeah, off. and then particularly didn't like having to give it up at the end of the at war. At the end, no, because the government technically guaranteed that if you enlisted you'd have your job when you came back. Mm. But that ignored the fact that women could have been working there for five, six years, yeah. seven years. If you if you were out in the Far East on VJ Day, it could have taken you 18 months to get back. And, okay, you were lucky. You'd served from 1939 right the way through to 1948. You want your job back. Well, the woman who's made a very good job of your job is still there, and she doesn't want to give her job up. I know a chap who, and he's a very short man, very short, um and so didn't fight for two reasons during the war, because he was too young and he would have been too short anyway. Although, of course, there were the Bantam regiments, but let's not get into that when we... You know, they they fought to uh, massive credit. But he was a very short guy and a very young guy, so he spent the entire war driving an ambulance around blitzed Manchester and Salford, dodging (laughs) dodging falling down buildings and putting himself in great personal danger. At the end of the war, he had to take his driving test because <laughs> he'd never. He started doing it when he was fourteen. Lied about his age. Started driving an ambulance when he was fourteen. At the end of the war, they said, "Oh, you haven't even got a driving license. You're going to have to set a driving test." And then he said, "Oh, you're actually too short to be able to drive." And he's going, "I've just spent five years driving a blinking ambulance." And in the end, they gave in. But during the war, a lot of things were let slide, weren't they? Oh, they had to be. If you. But then after the war, they went right. All the regulations are back in force. And, you know, women, you can go back to cooking and cleaning. Uh, you, who've been driving an ambulance for five years, uh, sorry, you're too short to have a driving license. You're not allowed to drive a car. What? <laughs> yeah, it was a, a, as big a sea change and an upset on the domestic front 
as the outbreak of war had been, the outbreak of peace. Yes, people knew or hoped in their hearts of hearts there'd be peace one day, somehow, but the, the Austin went back to their plans. If who you, was who was best prepared, the British car makers, for peacetime? Morris. Morris. William Morris. Right. He, uh, Alec Isigonis, had designed the Morris Minor, the Morris Oi, Thousand. Sir Alec to you. Do you mind? Sir but Alec he Isigonis. wasn't then, though. He wasn't he? then. Yeah. He had designed, during the war, what became the Morris Mosquito and then the Morris Minor. That right. was designed during the war. He'd laid the foundations for the Mini, arguably, during the war. The Vincent Black Shadow was designed... There you go. In secret during the war, because some of the car companies and some of the bike manufacturers kind of prepared for peacetime, and others just seem to completely have their head down mm. um, servicing the war effort. And it's a really awkward subject to talk about, but a lot of them made a lot of money during the war, didn't they? That's exactly what I was going to say. Money. They were paid for it, and they bid for contracts. They became huge engineering concerns, not just car manufacturers. The Austin employed 115,000 people at the outbreak of the war. Yes, they lost some to enlisting, but they bulked it up as much as they could with women who could be machinists, could be precision tool makers, and they went out and they bid for contracts, and they won contracts. I mean, you, you, you see the, the, the 20 years earlier effect in Peaky Blinders, where he, in Birmingham, is building an empire on the back of the fact that there's confusion, there's utter, utter, what are we going to do now syndrome, and it took strong men like Leonard Lord, who'd taken over the reins from Sir Herbert Austin, like Lord Nuffield at Morris, to actually push through. The, the, the less prepared makes within 15 years had gone. Your Alvises barely made it into the 60s. Yeah, but Alvis did really well during the war, didn't they? Yeah, but they Again, decided- again as I say... That you know, head down, they were just completely uh, preoccupied with what they were doing during the war, and then all of a sudden it was right. It's peacetime. What are you going to do now? Uh, oh, oh, blimey! We've been we've been taken out by our competition. They largely who, who were better prepared. Yeah, than they us. largely stayed as defence contractors. They still, are, still make they? Yeah. yeah military vehicles. They're bringing back a continuation series because that's what everyone's doing. Bentley are doing it with the Blower Bentley, which was never actually a Bentley model. Of course, it was a private investment vehicle from Dorothy, Dorothy Padgett, Padgett and, and uh, Tim Birkin. Tiger 10. So Henry Birkin. Alvis have got the chassis still there. They're conti- they, it's a genuine continuation. It's not a restart. They've like not the had others. those chassis sitting there for all that time, have they've they? They've got the plates, the numbers. Oh, they've got They're the all in the, in the book. <laughs> They're all in the book. So it's literally, this chassis was supposed to be made in April 1940. It never was, but let's do it now. So... Austin, after the war, saw an opportunity. Yes. And the Austin 16. Tell, tell us the story of that car, Guy, how the, how the Austin 16 that you and I drove 3,000 miles through Europe in commemoration of Austin's own trip, setting off to the second... Yes, indeed. ...from outside the town hall in Oslo, uh, from when they did. How did that car, the Austin 16, the one that we went in the version that we went how did that come to be it was a direct result of Leonard Lord's trip to America it looks like a Buick it does look like Let's a Buick be honest the front end styling yeah. is lifted it's a pure lift from a 1938 model Buick the engine was under development and continued ticking over during the war it was their first all new overhead valve design they've been side valve merchants up to that point it's an overhead valve design much more robust than anything they made 2.2 litre four cylinder very, very strong, as we've discovered, yep. engine. and Lords of talk. 
absolutely pull a tree trunk out with that engine. We, using satellite correction on the autobahns in Germany where it was legal, we saw a genuine 83 miles an hour out of a 70-year-old car. Yeah, I was driving, <laughs> and we got, a, we got a frenzied phone call from, a frantic phone call from the uh, support vehicle saying, please slow down, <laughs> yeah. look in your rearview mirrors. <laughs> and the, the problem was that, not the problem, but that a car of that, of that vintage... There's a lot of grease nipples and there's a lot of points on the undercarriage of the vehicle where it... it and we just, realising the roads were going to be snowy and salty in Scandinavia, we'll, we'll get on to where we set off from and where we got to in the end, and whether we got there in the end, yes. um, in a minute. But we had liberally applied all sorts of uh, lubrication to the undercarriage. And at speed, it started to get hot and smoke like mad. They couldn't see where they were going. But, yeah, I was, I was impressed... I was impressed by that car. Were the public impressed by the car when it was made available for sale in the 1940s, the late 40s? They were. Uh, the millionth Austin was an Austin 16. Was it, was it over-ambitious of Aus- Austin to build a car like that? Because, really, were they, who were they competing with? It, it wasn't a Bentley. It wasn't a, it wasn't a Rolls-Royce. It was only a four-cylinder. It was a, who was the competition? Alvis Jaguar? Yes. Jaguar were not coming back in big numbers. The 16 was the range leader. That's why it was chosen for the 1947 Goodwill Tour to go to the first post-war motor show. And it was a bank manager's car. Hold on. Was Geneva chosen as the venue because Switzerland was neutral. neutral? I've just worked that out. I've been to... I know, don't... Stop that, please. <laughs> Guy's doing this sort of stifling a laugh thing because he knows he's on the radio, but... I've been to the Geneva Motor Show many times. I've only just worked out... I've always, I've always thought... Swiss cars, Monteverdi. I can't think of another one, although the Monteverdi was quite spectacular. Uh, why would it be here? And I've just realised, because after the war, it was the only place you could go where there weren't, you know, unfortunate associations. I mean, the Germans wouldn't want to go to Paris. No. Nope. The British wouldn't want to go to Berlin. So, Geneva. Yep. It was the... If you look at Europe with your eyes half closed on a map, you could argue that it's the centre of Europe. Yeah. Yeah, okay, the Germans, it took them an hour and ten minutes to drive there from Stuttgart, whereas even with the best of British cars, it would take you a day. Mm. But geopolitically, geographically and politically, it was the centre of post-war Europe. So, Austin released the all-new... Was Mm -hmm. it all-new? It was. Austin 16. It was all-new to the market. It was a 1940 model. But it was all new in 1946. So it was ready to go in 1940, and they just, hold on just a minute. And then, was there some idea that they should, it was an old design and that they should try something else, or did they think, no? No, because it was, it was a new design to the marketplace. They hadn't released the new look. The previous Austin 16, and if you look on our Facebook page, and uh, if you look at the YouTube version of Steve Speed Shop, there are... Photographs, uh, contemporary photographs, and uh, ones from the time of the cars that we talk about. The Austin 16 previously generation, it looked that looked like the car from uh, the Wacky Races. That was like the Chugaboom, yeah. Gumdrop, the, the, the bulletproof bomb. That was yeah. separate fenders, running boards, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yes, it was a big, not very quick car, but it was luxurious for yeah. the Austin range. Yeah. Whereas the 16 arguably, when it was new, could have been a 100-mile-an-hour car if you were mad enough to push it. It would certainly sit all day at 80 when it was new. We That's remarkable, it. isn't it? Yeah. We proved it. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why it was such big news when it came out less than a year after the, the proper end of the Second World War. Now, my uh, 
particular speciality when it comes to two wheels is um, classic Italian scooters. <laughs> a lot of people might not know that. I was once the editor, I was for a few years, of Scootering, the world's preeminent monthly scootering magazine. And I love to read about all the crazy globetrotting trips that enterprising mainly men, young men, did just after the war. Like, as soon as the air model Lambretta and the first Vespa were out, like, Paolo from Pontedera was off around the world on it. Yeah. And you'd see pictures of this Vespa strapped to a raft in Indonesia or halfway up a canton or something like that. Straight after the war, manufacturers were keen to prove, and it seems, it seems difficult to imagine today, the durability above everything else, never mind performance and sort of, you know, all the other things that people are preoccupied with today. They wanted to say, if you buy one of these, it won't break. Well, they, the, the, the phrase they came out with was, you, you buy a car, you invest in an Austin. Marvellous. What a fantastic thing to say. And the, the chap who was running Austin, the PR officer, public relations officer for Austin, was a guy called Alan Hess. Guy, did they have PR before the war? Because yes, I, they did. I think late forties is pretty. In America, yeah, they kind of invented that stuff. Yeah. but in Britain, was it? Did, did one not just put a, an advertisement in the mirror? One placed an advertisement, um, and in one, the Times. So one would go down to Brooklands and yes. talk to Major Campbell or uh, Tim Birkin, and you'd say, "I say, old chap, would you would you care to have one of our motors for the weekend when you're not racing?" And they would probably say, yes, that's very kind of you. Right, okay. Uh, so it was product placement, if you like. If right. you could get a snap of one of the Speed Kings using the Dunlop tyres. The Speed or, Kings. What a great term. Hold on a second. This guy was called Alan Hess. Yeah, uh, that did... <laughs> that, no, yes, yes, you've spotted it's, that. Hold on. <laughs> was he any relation? No. Not to Rudolph? He insists not. Right. Uh, but oh, is he still? He's not still with us. No, but in his book, he does mention that oh. as they came to the German frontier from Denmark, he thought, "Ah, handing over a passport with the name Hess in it might not be the best thing I've ever done." As we entered the demilitarized zone in Germany, so Austin had this new car. They were desperate to publicise it, and Alan Hess was the PR head of PR, and he had a bit of a, a wizard wheeze. He had he a, a light bulb moment. He thought, if we can take our cars from England and drive them, and not just drive them straight to Geneva, but let's do... And seven was picked because it was everybody's lucky number. Because, hold on, Guy, there's often the story told about Norman, RIP, Norman Jewish, great bloke. We both knew him. Uh, fantastic guy. The Jaguar test driver. Um, there's that story of how he took that E-type from Coventry to Geneva overnight. Mm -hmm. That's fairly straightforward. Right, OK. I'm not diminishing Norman's fantastic... Because, of course, he'd done a full day of testing yes. before they said, oh, by the way, Norman, could you please... Deliver that to Geneva that tomorrow. To Geneva. Yeah. Now. Could you take it now? And it, he got there in time. But they didn't go straight to Geneva. Tell no. us what they did. They wanted, or Hess decided it would be a good idea to showcase the latest Austins around their traditional markets across Europe, their strongest partners, and also those people who had been good to England during the war. So it was a goodwill tour, and that's what they called Generally, it, Generally, the Austin it? goodwill tour of Europe. So we only went to people that we, we hadn't been at war with. <laughs> you, If you look it up, if you buy the book, which is still available, or you look at it, Google it, they didn't go to Berlin. 
No, they didn't go to Berlin. <laughs> no, they didn't go to Berlin. They, they, they didn't go to uh, Vienna. No, they transited They didn't go through. to Tokyo. <laughs> they transited through Germany in as short as possible time as they could. Transited? Yes. Right. Because Germany was still occupied. So the first place they went was Oslo. Yep. They crossed from um, Newcastle to Stavanger, which we couldn't do, unfortunately, because that route doesn't exist anymore. We, sh- we should say at this point, and I've probably said it in the introduction, but you might have missed that bit, that Guy and I recreated the trip that Austin themselves had done back in the late 40s, and we tried to follow as closely as possible the route that they had followed and to drive 3,000 miles through Europe, visiting major capital cities of people that were on the same side in during the war. I should emphasise that. It was like that back then. People, it was. People still held a grudge. It was like two years since we'd been shooting at each yeah. other. So um, we tried to do this, but um, it was inspired by a book that Alan Hess, the guy we've just mentioned, wrote called... Gullible's Travels. Yeah, which fired Guy up here because it was a tale of sort of plucky British daring do, wasn't it? Yeah, correct. And we like that, don't we? We it, do. Right, it may be unfashionable, but we don't care. <laughs> right? Because, so here's the thing. My dad has told me, my dad's the same age as, as your dad, he's 80, and he's told me about the winter of 47. Oh, the worst ever. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So how did they get the cars from Birmingham to Newcastle? They tried to drive it, failed, got as far as Derby in 12 hours. Good Lord. Longbridge to Derby in 12 hours, and put the cars in Derby Central Station and were told they would be put on a train to Newcastle because trains were getting through. Was this at the highest level? Could, do you think Leonard Lord, the head of Austin, got on the phone to, and said... The head of um, London Northwestern, because it was pre-grouping. I say, old boy. Yes, could we have some transportation on It's ver- very important for Britain's yes. export future. Export drive. I think we can do that. Yes. Goodbye. <laughs> so they were stuck on the back of a train. They were moved up and transshipped at Newcastle and craned onto their... Transit boat, Cause they three took, cars. They took three cars. They uh, did. Alan Hess and, and, and one very famous, um, one very famous British racing driver, kind of in the twilight of his career. Maybe um, I think that's. Was fair he to still say. racing at the time? Uh, no. Right. So this guy's called Sammy Davis. Not that guy. Not Mister Bojangles. Sammy Davis, who'd been one of the Bentley boys. Bentley boys. He won them all for Bentley, and he'd served during the Second World War as an officer in the tank corps and had come back to a career in Fleet Street to pick up where he left off. And he was picked by Hess, because Hess had known him from the Brooklyn's Cride in uh, the pre-war years, and Sammy was picked as a good, safe pair of hands. Each car had an Austin person, a mechanic from Austin again, and a, a driver, so you'd have two. Some of them had three, because they took along a man from Fox Pictures, a man from British Movie Tone News, mm. and a man from Pathé. Pathé. As well. Here's a good man of the Austin Motor Company in Oslo, Norway. The footage, <laughs> the footage for that I tried really, really hard to find for the book because I wanted to put it in the book, and they denied it existed, denied it existed, no. I gave him the reference because Hess noted the reference in his book. Well, he, well, he would. He was that sort of yeah, a chap. very fastidious. And they said, no, he must have been wrong. It didn't happen. Because he was German. And then <laughs> last year... I get an email from someone at the Austin Counties Car Club who covered the Austin 16, and he said, you might want to watch this, and he sends me a link. And it uh, says, um, uh, high, bank holiday hijinks and sporting activity, and he says, watch it at 1 minute 47 seconds. And we go to Epsom for the derby, and then suddenly 
we're in Norway with three Austin 16s. It said, yeah. another kind of sporting endeavour. They're pictured here. Three cars from the Austin Motor Company on a tour of Europe. The first peacetime trip undertaken by a British manufacturer. And they'd misfiled it. If it people, does exist. If people think that why are we put it on these voices, two reasons. One, that's how they used to talk. Two, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Mr Chumley Warner. <laughs> yes, indeed. So we, we needed to find an Austin 16. We did. And it wasn't easy, was it? It wasn't. I looked at, with Jeff Marshall, our stalwart mechanic who came on the trip with us, I looked at nine different Austin 16s. And then I got a phone call from my friend and colleague here saying, I found the Austin 16, and it's about two miles from where you live, in Salford. And we went and found a car that had been in a garage since 1962. The driveway had been retarmacked twice. We had to crowbar the doors off the garage to remove the car. Three of the three of the tyres held air. I used the I used. Do you remember? I used the the pump that came with the car. Yeah, the stirrup pump. The yeah. stirrup pump that came with the car. Pumped the tyres up, and three of them held air. This thing had it. The, the poor chap that had owned the car had suffered some sort of accident at work, always imagined that one day he'd recover and be able to drive his, drive his treasured Austin 16. So um, it, I think he'd been an engineer by profession. He was, he was a precision engineer. And absolutely. so he'd, he'd, he'd kept everything greased and serviced. I think he, did he even, I think he changed the oil. He changed the oil, he serviced oh. it, he would run it once a month. Right. He'd get his daughter, who we bought the car from, because yeah. sadly her mother had passed away and this car was still effectively tarmacked up in the garage. And he would run it once a month. He'd have been in there since yeah. before us two were alive. Since before the Beatles. And we're old. <laughs> so we got it out and we got it going. And you, we got it on a boat to Europe and we all met again in Oslo. We did, which was the starting point that they used. We had two days in Oslo. We went and... Uh, God, that's expensive, that city. Oh, we linked Ooh. up with a, a wonderful guy by the name of Thomas Groot who's an English-Norwegian. From the uh, Royal Norwegian Automobile Club? He is now. He wasn't then. He was just a member. But he'd seen the stories I was writing up about restoring the car in Practical Classics, thanks to the good offices of Danny Hopkins, the editor of that august journal. And Thomas said, if I can help in any way whatsoever, let me know. So we got in touch and said, well, we're arriving on this day. And Thomas was on the dockside as we got off the ferry, showed us to his house, bought us lunch, Took us to our hotel. He came with us for quite a... He came with us into Sweden. Was, he did. We, we were like, is Thomas still there? <laughs> because we set off... To, correct me if I'm wrong, Guy. This is how I'm remembering it. And, and I do have a tendency to embellish. We set off, which I'm fully aware of, but it makes it more interesting. I'm, I think we set off to the second 70 years from when they set off. 70 years to the second. Because we waited for the town hall clock. To strike nine. In the beautiful square in the centre of Oslo. Dong! And we were flagged off by the president of the Royal Norwegian Automobile Club. Using the same flag. Using the that same flag. That had flagged flag. them off 70 years earlier. How cool is that? <laughs> now, the thing is, people have said to me, when I told them about our trip, they went, well, it's not 3,000 miles. And I said, yeah, but you go direct, it's not. But they did. that's not the purpose of the goodwill trip. The goodwill trip was to spread goodwill and go and represent, as the young people say, to the Austin's representatives. Mm. So instead of going down, we went across to Stockholm, didn't we? And we it did. Was, it was damn cold. It was very, very cold in Stockholm. That's where we had our only crosswords with any of our hosts because they tried to Shanghai us into buying another room at the hotel having denied that we'd booked what we'd booked and had confirmed. You're still bitter about that. I am. But the car ran great. And one of the reasons that it ran great is because we got the proper weight of oil from our lovely friends at Total. 
Absolutely. Who, of course, are French, so that was okay because we were on the same side during the war. Let, let, don't, don't even go there, right? We got some lovely oil off Total, lovely thick oil to cope with the freezing cold conditions that we It was like minus five at one point. It was. There's a yeah. reason to say why it was so cold because just a couple of days later, it was really warm. The contrast was crazy. Yeah. So we we got to Stockholm uh, without too much of a, a fuss and nonsense, and then headed for Copenhagen. We did, and there's a. I remember coming out of the hotel after we'd had dinner in Stockholm, and it was still light. It was that classic yeah. thing of it never actually got totally dark. Because of course we're doing this um, to be at the Geneva Motor Show, which is March, March, early March. So it's still very much winter in Scandinavia. And the, one of the best things for me was that I just said, yeah, because you suggested it and it sounded like a great idea. But I hadn't read Alan Hesse's book. And I was reading the book as we were travelling in the car. So I was reading about the much more difficult conditions that they'd had to contend with because, as we've said, the winter of 1947 in Europe was particularly historically brutal. It was. And they struggled, didn't they? The um, the crossing they had to do from um, Sweden over to Denmark was delayed because the sea had frozen. We went over that fantastic bridge. I'm surprised <laughs> that the, the chaps from Austin didn't just set off across the ice. Because, oh. you know... Remember- they went and watched some ice racing. Earl Howe was there racing his ERA on a frozen lake just up the coast from them. The man who said motor racing is dangerous, gentlemen. Let's keep it that way. Earl yes, Howe. Exactly. The, yeah. the man who in the, the Brooklyn's paddock walked along and saw um, <clears throat> the famous northeastern gentleman working on his car, and he said, ah, Dixon. How's Dixon? Fine. How's how? How's how? How's how? comes the answer. So they went watching ice racing, yeah. yeah. So it was considerably easy for us going across the bridge. And the other thing that we didn't have to do is transit through a country which was still under military occupation. Mm. Some people would say Germany still is under military. Well, the British Army's still there. The Americans are still there. But they were warned not to stop other than for essential stops. Yeah, they fueling and answering the call of nature because there was unexploded ordnance everywhere and and unfriendly locals. Unfriendly locals and no signs. No, no signage at all. No signage at all. So they they had to map read. They went a bit wrong, didn't they? They went very wrong a couple of times in Germany. They almost had to plot it by the stars. So we didn't have anything like that. No, we had it easy from... um, We went and spent a very pleasant night in Copenhagen and gate crashed the posh hotel next door and had a dinner in the penthouse looking out over the city, which was very pleasant, I recall. I love Copenhagen. It's a great city. There's really, really good car people, good motorcycle people, and uh, the beer is fantastic. Oh, yes. Wonderful Copenhagen. (laughs) Uh, Then went on to Amsterdam. So we've got... Guy and I did... We're very particular. We did every yard, the two of us. Neither of us was willing to let anybody else travel in the car because we had, thank you, Jaguar Land Rover, we had a backup vehicle from JLR and we had uh, Jeff, the mechanic, and our fantastic uh, photographer, uh, Philip, and at times my partner, Karen, who flew in. (laughs) She did it right. She flew in in from, she's Canadian, she flew in from Vancouver to Amsterdam to Schiphol, stayed with her family, she's half Dutch, in Amsterdam, and then rode with us in the in the Range Rover to Paris. 
Yes. Where we didn't go into the city because we weren't allowed, we weren't to, go allowed to go into the city. See, here's the thing. I mean, people have talked to me at the trip and said, oh, you had it easy. But here's, here's something that, and we did to a degree, but we couldn't go into Paris, right? And, and here's, a, here's something that, that Sammy Davis and Alan Hess and the guys that originally did the trip didn't have to contend with, overtaking trucks. So we've mentioned that the 16 was a redesigned car and was based on a, a, a Buick. Leonard Lord had been to the States. He'd seen American cars. He liked the Buick, the design of the 16. Again, I say, look at the Facebook page. Go to YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, you see the pictures anyway. Um, they didn't have to try and overtake articulated lorries because mm. here was the deal. We get alongside an articulated lorry and we'd be absolutely flat out in the 16. So we're doing 70, 75 MPH. As you get near the front, the wash from the front of the truck is pushing you back, pushing you back. So you're just trying to ease the car forward. As you get level with the truck, the wash disappears, and all of a sudden you spurt, you, you'd spurt forward, and and it's almost like then you've got to get in front of it. You've got to get back in front of it, and it was tricky, stressful, mm. wasn't it? It was. It was. The weight of traffic, I think the only easy drive we had was that run down to the bridge from mm. Um, mm. in Sweden when we passed the, all the, the Saab aeroplanes on sticks in the middle of the highway. Yeah, it may, I, I, yeah that, was a, that was quite a sight, wasn't it, in, mm. the, in the winter landscape. But it was interesting to... We didn't really modify the vehicle, did we? It wasn't modified at all. I, I, I wanted it to be a totally standard 16. I was talking to somebody at the weekend who was so passionate about the over-modification of historic vehicles. You know, like, to the point where people are like, oh, yeah, there's some charging points under there for your phone, and, oh, oh no, no, it's on 12-volt, yeah, I didn't, that's 6-volt nonsense, and, oh, it, there's dynamat everywhere. I mean, I love Jay Leno, right? I think he's the greatest car enthusiast in the world, but he does like to make his vehicle... This is going to sound like criticism, because it is. He does like to make his vehicles more comfortable and quieter and he all that sort of stuff. personalises them. Yeah, but he... He, 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 he wussifies them, there, in a way. I want the noise. I want the vibration. I want the harshness. I wanted to experience what Alan Hess and Sammy Davis and the Austin... Uh, crews experienced when they did our rides. And here's the thing, at speed we couldn't hear each other think. No. I mean because, flat screen Flat screen open at the bottom still Yeah. If we wanted demist, we had to have a half an inch of uh, Arctic wind blowing through. And at one point when I was in the passenger seat and Steve was driving I thought why is my left leg so cold? And I looked down and I saw the door was still open. And without oh, thinking, I, remember, I, remember I opened the door to shut it, <laughs> forgetting that it was a suicide, suicide door. door. That's why they call them suicide doors, guy. Because I nearly killed myself. There's, exactly. In fact, at the time, we did notice that that was probably why they were called suicide yes. doors. Because if they did come open at speed... You left the vehicle. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's no seatbelts. If I hadn't been so well wrapped up in my Mintex jacket <laughs> over my Total fleece, wearing my long johns and my trousers over the top, I Hold would on. have just fallen out. Did you mention all the sponsors there? Um, I had a JLR lapel badge on as well. I, To me, that was it. It, it was to experience what they experienced. Yeah. And we didn't because we had motorways and auto routes and, and, and whatever you want to call them which they didn't have. They had unmade roads, they had paved roads, 
they had to cope with roads that had been deliberately taken up by either the Allies yes. or, or Bridges by the... that weren't there because they'd been blown up. Yeah, they'd get to somewhere, and the, the bridge was on the map. But guess what? You know, like uh, Patton had taken him out yeah. <laughs> when he was coming through. But there were moments, Steve, that I think we got the thrill that they had, especially when we were driving into Mons. And it yeah. was cobbled, it was paved, mm. and we pulled up outside the town hall by the Brass Monkey, which is mentioned in the book and yep. talked about in the book. They all rubbed the Brass Monkey's head. And you and I pulled up there. That's not a euphemism. No, that's Guy and I, true. Guy and I didn't share a room on the trip, so if you're wondering about rubbing the Brass Monkey's head, it's not a euphemism. <laughs> Google it. There is a Brass Monkey in Mons. And we stopped there, and the town square in Mons escaped largely the first and second world wars somehow but it you know they rebuilt it to match Mm. and sat there having switched the austin off getting our hearing back and lowering the tone of our voices from screaming at each other looking out across that square that gave me a real sense of this is real history this is we're in the footsteps of these guys here really are recreating this sammy davis crashed a car yeah he did I thought he was a Bentley boy. I thought he was supposed to be a super-duper racing driver, and he wouldn't have been the car. Sheet ice. Was it? There's no need for that sort of language in here, Guy Loveridge. Uh, yeah, we didn't really experience that, did, did we? We were lucky. I remember as we were driving through Belgium on our way to and another sponsor to thank here, the International Hotels Group. Do you remember the hotel in Brussels? Oh, they were great. We all had a suite each. Yeah, but it was in the red light district. The, and... <laughs> What do you mean, and? My the, partner was there. The general manager came out and put our flag on the car for us. They had a, a cordoned-off area in front of the hotel with a red carpet for us. I, I had to be cordoned off <laughs> when we were true. staying there. But it, yeah. was, it was a wonderful... That was great because vibe. it was... Well, it was, but here was the thing. Some people got it in the way that we did, and the, the, the people in Belgium and people in Oslo. But other people were like, here's the thing, Austin's gone. The name isn't there. A lot of people don't know the Austin name, do they? Correct. And it, we, it, if you'd have thought in 1947 or 19, in the late 40s, would they ever have imagined that there'd be a British motoring landscape without the Austin no. name? You'd have put your 50 Bob D mob bonus on the fact that Austin would still be going 100 years on, let alone 70, wouldn't you? Yeah. We'd led the empire. You know, Austin built aircraft, had won the war for us, won the Battle of Britain. Of course Austin are going to be here forever. Yeah, but no. But we made it. We did. We We got there. We had a bit of trouble when we got into the Alps, didn't we? Yes, we had a bit of a a fuel issue. I love this. We had a little trouble. We we should explain it. I said I was going to mention it, so I will. We'd had minus five on the way from Oslo to um, to Stockholm. And within three days, we were in 20 degrees of heat. And therefore, the car had a lot to cope with, not just in terms of the distance. Mm -hmm. The car... Uh, had to be serviced every night because the service intervals were 500 miles and we were doing 500 miles a day, so we had to be serviced every night. Jeff was under it doing a service. And Total had looked at the long-range weather forecast and we were expecting minus 12 to minus 17. So they'd given us the perfect lightweight oil for that. But in the old language, 68-degree heat that we were going through Belgium in, it was was coming straight out of the engine. It just wasn't thick enough to to lubricate. But we were carrying it with us, so, yep. you know. We used it, but we, we had enough. We just used it. We were using it like you use oil in a, in a Vespa. We it just, it, just it felt like it was a two-stroke Austin yeah, at it's times. like a two-stroke Austin. When we got into the... the, the 
I mean, they had to back up certain certain steep. They did. Uh, cantons. Mm. No, they didn't go into the can. Oh no, they did because you go into Switzerland. Yeah, two different yeah, cantons, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, so there was a little bit of backing up. But yeah. here's the thing: if we'd have been, people said, "Oh, you should have made a film about it." But there wasn't too much drama. There was, I'm trying to remember the number of times we were actually broken down at the side of the road. And there was, was one point coming into Paris yeah. after we'd been to Mons and been to Leon and I was trying to climb a hill, and it was bat, 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 backfiring, yeah. and it was crawling up at seven miles an hour in first, and, and people, getting dark. And, and I here's thought, the thing. Oh. They're so intolerant. People mm. are so intolerant, aren't they? You're there in a 70-year-old vehicle, and it's popping and banging, and they're like, come on, what's wrong with you? And you think, can you not see? Are mm. you so ignorant, in the truest sense of the word? But it's, it, I suppose when you do something like that, and it's part of the appeal of that sort of a road trip, you encounter everything from incredibly helpful, friendly people mm. who just are taken in by the romance of what you're doing and think, yeah, this is great, yeah. to people who just couldn't give, and I'll go back to the Mons monkey, couldn't give a brass monkeys, could they? No sense of history, no sense of romance or adventure or anything like that. Right. And you just think, well, I'm glad there are less of you in the world than there are of the former because right. generally we got a great reception didn't we we did everywhere we went where people knew we were coming we were greeted warmly and friendly if people go onto facebook if you're on facebook that form of social media and put in austin 16 goodwill tour you'll find a page for it and on there you'll find a video of Steve and I climbing a hill sounding like we're shooting at people with the backfire we might inspire people to go on to go on trips like oh, I'd we love did it themselves. Did. I'd love it if people did, because yeah. there's so much... There are so many of them, because, as I, as I say, I know for a fact that um, as soon as the Vesper and Lambretta scooters arrived, they were seized upon as, as machines to go on incredible adventures down down from tip to toe through Africa, from, from Italy to China, around the world. And almost all the British car manufacturers went, right, OK... That's, they, they saw what Austin did and thought, right, that's how you sell your car. And there were all kinds of epic all journeys of undertaken by all, the... all sorts of unlikely British vehicles, yes. including Reliant Robins. Correct. <laughs> uh, Reliant went on the Monte Carlo Rally. It went into North Africa and went around the Sahara Desert. Uh, but Hess was the king of this. He knew that... He hated the word stunts, but he knew that doing this sort of thing sold cars. Mm. And at the peak, he had 167 international records with his name on wow. for endurance, for speed. He took an Austin A90 Atlantic to Indianapolis and drove round and round and round for a week round the Indy course because they wanted to sell the Atlantic into America. And they took loads and loads of class records Indianapolis. Guy, yeah, that sounds considerably less interesting and enjoyable than what we did. I don't exactly. want to do that. But it was a job. Yeah. His job was to sell Austin. He took another uh, racing driver, a guy called Ken Wharton, one of the few who really tamed the V16 yeah. BRM, yeah, and that. they went round the equator in an Austin A40 Jowett convertible. Three of them did the equator. So, back in the day, Alan Hess wrote a book about their adventures going from Oslo to Geneva in Austin 16s called Gullible's Travels. And after we'd done our trip, Guy wrote a book. Um, and published it back-to-back -back with Alan Hess's book. 
Is it still available from all good bookshops, Guy? It is still available. It has an ISBN number. You can Google it. You can get a copy. You can even ask me to write something silly in it if you want to. It's How did you get permission to reprint the Hess book? Because did Austin themselves produce no, that book? No, it was produced by Motor Racing Publications, MRP. Right. And luckily... Can you still get... I was going to say, can you still get it? You can still get it because you can get it with your book. It's Your yep. book is... It's the a facsimile edition. Exactly yeah. like for like, typeset with the same typos. We didn't correct anything. So you can see it. We even used period-style paper for the Hess bit, and then it goes to modern stock and a different typeface for our story following what, on. What's your most... I've got two memories from the trip that really stand out. The massive anticlimax of arriving in Bern, the Swiss capital... And kind of. Do you remember the name of the place we arrived at? Are you going? Is this going to be a joke about young boys? (laughs) Well, I think people are always quite surprised when they see the draw for any sort of European uh, football tournament, and and they find out that Manchester United or Liverpool are playing young boys. But (laughs) we pulled. It's the name of a Swiss football team. It's the name of a Swiss football team, and we pulled up in their car park. Yeah. Because it was the first place off the motorway. Once we'd made our seventh capital city in seven days, that we could pull up. We did it in six days. We did. We pulled up, stopped, sigh of relief, got out, all clapped each other on the back, shook hands, and I looked up, and the name of the place was W A N K D O R F F. We're British. We ended right? up being at. Exactly. Yes. We are British, and we cannot help but see double entendres, single entendres, yeah. uh, everywhere that we go in Europe. When we see Ein Fart or something like that, it makes us giggle. We're British, right? We went to, we're making no excuses. That's what we're like. We went to the hotel in Oslo where the team had stayed, and it has a blue plaque on the wall to commemorate a very famous Norwegian designer who had designed it, and his name is Ivor Kok. <laughs> I V A R K O K K. Right, and we, we found that hilarious for some reason. We were brought up with Carry On Films, Benny Hill, and Morecambe and Wise. So if, if you don't like it, then Sorry. other podcasts are available. But uh, the other memory, which is is still strong, is um, you know we were in the car for ten hours a day, mm. more on a yep. couple of occasions, and so whoever wasn't uh, whoever wasn't driving could do a bit of reading because. The Austin 60 is quite a commodious vehicle. It's got armrests. It's it, lovely. Well, the chairs are sprung horsehair stuffed chairs. Chairs. They're not like yeah. car seats. They're like uh, something one, one might club. find. Exactly. By the fire in a gentleman's club. And I was reading a book about the British rock band Led Zeppelin. And I got halfway through it. And there was a lot of black and white photos of them next to their private jet. And, and next to them playing, you know, huge stadiums. And I turned the page, and there was a full-page photograph of Robert Plant, the lead singer of the Led Zeppelins, sat on the bonnet of an Austin 16, exactly like the exactly like the one that we were in. And I just thought, wow, that is, you know, it, it really brought it home to me because presumably it was his Austin 16, and mm. presumably like so Leonard Lord's idea, which is sell Brits the American glamour of a Buick in a downsized package yep. and they'll flock to buy it, I was going to say, must have worked. But did it? Was the Austin 16 a sales success? It was. It kept them in business, but it Didn't soon, it only last two years or something like that? soon became realised that it was old hat because American post-war cars didn't look like American pre-war cars. Yeah. So with so many American service people 
still in the UK and cars being brought over, it had to be updated and it begat the whole Austin County's family. The 16 became that. It lasted two years and nine months in production. What's your strongest memory of the trip? My strongest memory of the trip is, I think, setting off... I'm watching him lift the flag yeah. off the bonnet, yeah. hearing the bongs echo, yeah. seeing out of my peripheral vision, Phil taking photos and jumping back into the I-Pace Land Rover, and we were up, and we knew where we were going, went up that road, turned right round the town hall, then right at the, the sea lock and across, and we were going, and we were out. It was the actual starting off, because I'd started trying to do this on the 50th anniversary back in the 1990s, and no one was interested and it had taken me 20 years of planning to get us actually in that car in Oslo on the exact anniversary, the 17th of March, 2017. Boff, off we went. It was great, and uh, we're cooking up another trip, which you'll hear about in due course. It won't be the reliant one, sadly. Although I I still might do that. I quite fancy that. Yeah. Uh, Again, thank you, Guy, but again, I would say, if you read about a trip in a book, if you see it in some old documentary you're watching on YouTube, if you buy a car magazine at a boot fair and there's a tale of some epic journey across the frozen tundra of wherever, just do it. Yeah. And don't be too precious about the vehicle. Mm-mm. I mean, we just got an old car that had been in a garage in Salford since 1962. And we made it go... And we drove it 3,000 miles through. And it's in Germany now, that car, isn't it? Isn't um, it? It's with uh, TMD Friction Mintex, who were the principal backers of the tour. And part of the agreement was when we got back and we took it to Goodwood and showed it off at the Goodwood Revival. We took it to the NEC. You and I drove it across the stage at the Buxton Classic Show and chatted there. And the deal was they would keep the car. And they have, and they've kept it going. It goes to charity days. It's been in Germany. It's been in the UK. And it's still in fine fettle. And I hope one day I get to drive it again. That's it for this episode of Steve's Speech Up, brought to you by Warranty Wise. Get a quote today at warrantywise.co.uk. And don't forget to tell your friends about Speed Shop. Let them know what a great listen it is. See you back here next week. <laughs>